1: from KQED From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In 2017, near the chaotic start of the Trump administration, a student at Albany High School created an Instagram account for his friends and began posting viciously racist memes about black students. We're talking jokes about nooses and neo-Nazi fake race science. When the account came to light, a firestorm erupted over how to hold the creator and his Instagram followers accountable, and not unrelatedly, what to do about the anger, shame, and fear caused by the posts. How did such wildly racist stuff even get into the minds and phones of the town's teenagers? Acclaimed journalist, Dashka Slater, spent years reporting on what happened, and she's written a new book, Accountable. She joins us right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. If you were in or around Albany High School in 2017, you know about the account. Though it began as a private Instagram and was only ever followed by about 15 people, the posts were so racist and their revelation so explosive that it led to huge protests and a botched mediation, it landed the school on local TV news. You cannot be
2: on me. You Albany high school students attempting to block a car with students who they say were involved in a hate-filled Instagram page. I was standing next to my coach, who is also African-American, and we both both had nooses around our neck. And that was the joke. I just felt, I felt really disgusted.
1: The fallout continued for years and years. And here to help us reconstruct what happened, what we can learn from that fallout, from this brutal moment, at the school. We're joined by Dashka Slater, the author of The 57 Bus as well as several children's books. Her new book about Albany is Accountable: The True Story of a Racist Social Media Account and the Teenagers Whose Lives It Changed. It comes out today. Welcome to Studio B, Dashka.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So for people who weren't following this, you know, contemporaneously, just tell us the basic thing that kind of happened here.
3: Uh, one day, a, a group of kids who were friends uh, were getting together uh, over the weekend, and one of them, a uh, biracial, white, and Mexican boy, showed the one of the girls uh, who is black and her friend, who is Asian, an Instagram account that a mutual friend of theirs had made. And this account was... Uh, extremely racist, showed it had a number of things on it, some kind of roast memes making fun of uh, the guys making fun of each other, Uh, lots of the kinds of standard misogyny that you see uh, kids doing, making fun of girls uh, for their weight, that kind of thing. So uh, bad enough. Mm -hmm. And then there were also these very racist memes, some of which targeted black girls who were in their social circle.
1: Mm. And when the word started to get out, like when, after it became known beyond the sort of private followership of this account, then what started to happen, you know, within the school?
3: Well, the, it was so upsetting to the girls who were friends with these boys, you know, which is kind of, it it began to radiate out through the school uh, starting on Monday after this weekend revelation. And the girls who were friends with these boys were felt deeply hurt and betrayed. And other black girls, uh, who even if they weren't on the account, obviously, they felt deeply hurt and betrayed at the same time. And uh, it began to move in the course of the school day through uh, this extended friend groups uh, um, of junior girls. And Their upset quickly caught the attention of administrators who pulled them in and began the process of trying to figure out what this account was because it was private and it had, you know, the followers were all using their Instagram names, some of which were clear who they were and some Mm -hmm. of them weren't. But none of them could actually get to the account because it was private.
1: So it was actually some students who then actually got a hold of basically screenshots of the account.
3: Yeah, I I always call this kind of the Nancy Drew moment where there was one girl, Carrie, who was friends with uh, some of the targeted girls. And she was also friends with the creator of the account. And she figured out how to get uh, a phone from one of the followers and take pictures of it with her own phone uh, and see what was on the account and document it. Wow.
1: So some of our listeners probably know Albany very well, you know, people in the East Bay, but others, other people out there might not be that familiar with sort of the context for this school. I mean, from your perspective, like, why is Albany important in this as a place?
3: Well, Albany is a tiny town. Uh, It's officially two square miles. uh, Only about one square mile of that is land. And it's about twenty thousand people, right next to Berkeley, sandwiched between Berkeley and El Cerrito, and it's known for having these wonderful schools. The schools are its, you know, its big drawing point. That people come there because they want to send their kids to challenging schools and small schools and uh, places where their kids are going to get the best education. And it has that feel of being kind of a smunk, small, funky town, uh, you know, a little bit of a backwater Solano Avenue. Walk around
1: Solano. Yeah, 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 like
3: funky and cool, but also San Pablo Avenue where it's car dealerships and mm-hmm. dive bars. And so it has lots to recommend it as being both this little small town, uh, but also right in the metropolitan heart of the Bay Area.
1: And, I mean, you've mentioned the race of a lot of the students here. they this is a fairly diversity, at least within the context of the United States of America. But how did it feel to the students who were there?
3: Well, it's so it's predominantly white and Asian, and uh, but it's only a three to four percent black. And so I think if you are a black person in Albany, it does not feel that diverse. Uh, I think if you're a white person in Albany, it probably does.
1: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what was actually on this Instagram account, what these, um, you know, juniors end up bringing to the administration of, you know, Albany High School. What, what's actually on it? Because I think it's, it is the very kind of details of the account that are part of what drive this, this whole story.
3: So the account was memes. They were attempts to be funny. Um, and I uh, if you could see me for listeners, there's be a lot of air quotes mm-hmm. of me moving my hands around um, <laughs> because obviously they were not funny, uh, I think, to anybody who was targeted and not to most of the other people who ever saw those posts, which were very few. and when we
1: talk about like these like quote unquote, jokes, I mean, this is a kind of like form of ironic racism that is like kind of actually part of the neo-Nazi playbook right now.
3: Yeah. So that's one of the things that I found the most interesting as I was researching this story is when I sat down for the first time with Charles, who was the creator of the account, and he said, I know this is racist. I'm not in denial about it, but I don't think people understand where it came from And so the odd thing was that he didn't see himself as being racist. He saw himself as doing edgy humor Mm -hmm. and he was very online and in these uh, places on the internet that are about being funny and are designed particularly to cater to the tastes of young men, particularly young white men, um, but also young Asian men as Charles is, and uh, they sort of play with offensive humor. So the idea is that you're not supposed to say it, you're not supposed to think it. It's the humor is that it is transgressive. Mm-hmm. And that appeal has absolutely been exploited by organized hate groups. Um, including, uh, you know, name your white supremacist group, name your neo-Nazi group. Um, But Stormfront in particular had an actual style guide that said people should not be able to tell whether we are being ironic or not. The idea is to kind of uh, make something palatable or mainstream through this plausible deniability that says, well, if you're offended by it, you didn't get the joke.
1: Did the kids, either who were, you know, Charles, who's making the account, and I think we should also say these are pseudonyms um, yes. for, for th- throughout here. Um, did the kids making the account or following the account understand that they were essentially channeling neo-Nazism?
3: No, I don't think they did. Uh, and I think they would have been shocked to understand where it was coming from. They thought they were being funny. And that they were kind of walking this line and imitating other things that they were seeing in places like Reddit, on YouTube. Uh, The internet is filled, and in 2017 was even more filled, uh, with this kind of humor. Mm -hmm. So that uh, what kids want to do, particularly boys, is to be funny in the way that they see online. And so this was an attempt to replicate Mm -hmm. that.
1: So as these kind of online world of, you know, not funny, but jokey racist memes meets school administration and actual real people that they knew, what starts to happen at the school?
3: So the school uh, pretty much went into immediate crisis. You know, the, the depth of the hurt and pain and fear and betrayal Because as much as the boys were convinced that it was all just a joke, it certainly did not feel that way to the people who were targeted, who felt uh, that they were shamed by people they thought they could trust. Uh, There was references to nooses, which is pretty threatening. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was... An immediate attempt by the school to try and and respond quickly um, and severely with suspensions and expulsion, and um, at the same time there was all the fallout that was happening amongst the kids. Uh, where friendships are combusting and uh, and ending, and people are demanding to know w- what happened and why were you a participant in this and trying to figure out exactly who the participants were and so on.
1: Yeah, because there's this kind of scrum of information seeking by all these different groups. and you know I was trying to map out a few of them that we can talk about after the break, but you know you had the kid who made the account, you had the kids who sort of followed and encouraged the account, you had, you know, the kids who were posted about on the account, the parents of all those people, the teachers, other students at the school, the local school officials, like the principal, you know, also district administrators, and then the school board. And so you can see that each of those different groups would have access to kind of a different set of information, right? A
3: different piece of the of it the is. elephant. Yeah. And then it all went onto the, onto the news because uh, somebody called the, the, new, the nightly news and said, look at these, uh, because they had copies of the posts.
1: Wow. We're talking with Dashka Slater about her new book, Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed. It's about Albany High School. An article based on the book is in this week's New York Times magazine. We'd love to hear from you what are your questions about what happened at Albany High in 2017 and the fallout from it? We know we probably have some people listening or even a part of this book and this story. You can give us call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, threads. or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Dashka Slater about her new book, Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed. It's set at Albany High School, this is something that happened here in our area in 2017. I wanted to take some time to talk about how the people who were posted about were affected by seeing their friends and you know acquaintances you know, both post and like these just horrifically racist things. Um, what, what happened to some of them?
3: You know, I don't think it's possible to overestimate or overstate how much of a betrayal it was. I often thought when I was reporting the story and talking with the people who had been targeted about how the job of adolescence is to construct an identity. Hmm. And Uh, If you're a kid from a marginalized group, uh, in this case, black girls, uh, part of the work that you have to do is to kind of protect your growing self from the ambient racism in our culture. Uh, One statistic that I talk about in the book is that the average black teenager encounters five instances of discrimination per day uh, in the form of news articles or comments or uh, jokes. Uh, So every day, kids are having to kind of protect themselves from those kinds of uh, shame-inducing feelings Mm -hmm. that are coming from outside and to grow and be confident and do all the things they want to do as a young person. And this account was like a meteor crashing through the Mm -hmm. roof of that protection. And all the things that they had let go by um, all the the dumb remarks that people make, the the you know jokes that people made uh, to one another, because a lot of this is just coming from their peers. Um, all of that looked totally different now. It was impossible to say, well, they didn't really mean it. Uh, just shrug it off. I don't want to be the problem here. Uh, you know, all of the stuff that they had been telling themselves was no longer possible to believe. And so it was the account, but it was also all the stuff around the account that was so shattering. And so you saw uh, incredible levels of anxiety because there had been pictures taken of them at school. So there was this sort of feeling of being exposed, and people are looking at you, and you don't know who to trust. Uh, there was a lot of depression and just you know feeling disengaged from school. Uh, not connected to the community, like their whole world had just been turned upside down. All the things that they understood as a bedrock beliefs—that your friends are your friends and they have your back—and there might be are...
1: racism out there, but like in here, we're sort of cool.
3: Exactly. This is Albany. Uh, everybody has the same values, and you know, all of that was just blew up.
1: Oh man, so tough. I mean, this is also occurring really early in the Trump era, and I think a lot of Americans were feeling there was this atavistic return of kind of the ugliest forms of racism, like things were being said that didn't, I, I think many people never anticipated being said uh, again. And do you think that also fed into that, at least like for, you know, administrators, but perhaps also for the the students?
3: I'm glad you brought that up because I really think it's important to have that context. This was three months into the Trump administration. And the levels of kind of ambient anxiety that I think all of us in uh, blue states were feeling, uh, and many people in red states as well, about the fact that white nationalism had been kind of mainstreamed suddenly, and we had somebody who was consorting with the Proud Boys in the highest office of the land, uh, that sense of our identity was also kind of shattered, mm. that we thought we you know, were living in a, a place that had moved beyond the m- most ugly... Um, and uh, and um, outwardly aggressive forms of racism, and that made it so that people, I think, were very re- uh, reactive. You know, mm-hmm. there was a real feeling of like, "Oh my God, the call is coming from inside the house." Mm-hmm. Like we thought that th- that was those people in those other places, but actually, it's happening right here.
1: Um, is there a moment when things really blow up within the context of of the school?
3: Yeah, there certainly was. There was uh, after all the students who followed the account were suspended for the maximum amount allowed under California state regulations. Uh, The creator of the account was uh, moved towards expulsion at this point in the story. Um, He had not been expelled, but he would be. Uh, And there was an attempt to have a mediation when the suspended students returned to school. That day, there was also a sit-in that was called to protest the return of these students. Mm. And so at the same time that the people who had been targeted by the account and their friends were meeting in a room with uh, the 11 followers of the account who were returning to school uh, there was one other st- student who had been uh, mm-hmm. who was also b- was going to be expelled and there was one who had gone on independent study so there were 11 of the followers who returned uh, and they were supposed to have a meeting and uh, the idea was that they would get resolution and then everybody would be able to go back to school and everything would be fine that did not happen.
1: Mm-hmm what happened uh,
3: what happened was that the mediation first of all went terribly the students were not prepared the the people who had been targeted were incredibly upset their feelings were very raw and they had a lot of questions they wanted answers to and the people who had followed the account were not prepared to give them. They had not been uh, through any kind of self-examination yet. They had not really thought about uh, the impacts that they had had just by following the account. And so they wanted to explain, well, I was just a follower. I didn't make the posts, that kind of thing. And so this meeting of people who really wanted to see contrition and uh, these other kids who wanted to say, like, I'm not racist was a disaster mm. and then feet away there's a sit-in happening
1: yeah and so they end up as i understand it, essentially kind of hold up and then the protesters are kind of lined up waiting to have them basically do like a walk of shame out the front door or they run out the back and then the basically kind of a melee ensues like on campus right
3: yeah it was um it's actually sort of shocking. The whole day was shocking. Uh, so their departure from the school happened at the very end of the day. There had been a day-long uh, protest where kids were out of class, and the followers of the account had end up kind of holed up in a conference room, as had some of their parents who were being held in a storage room. Um, nobody could figure out how the kids who had followed the account and their parents were going to get out of the school. And the protesting students had lined up and formed this kind of gauntlet um, out the front door where they said, you know, we just want them to do this walk of shame so they can see uh, how much we disapprove of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the administrators, and with the cooperation of the Albany police, uh, tried to get the kids out the back door. And what happened was that as soon as word of the this rear door exit happened all the kids from the front ran around to the back melee uh one of the account followers ended up um having his nose broken another was punched um and kids ended up as you heard in the opening clip Mm -hmm. um ended up surrounding the minivan that had three of the account followers and their parents and a grandmother uh were Mm -hmm. all in it and the kids are surrounding the van shaking the van um throwing things and so on
1: you know, one listener writes and say, you know, both the hosts and guests appear to be talking around the fact that these were boys posting disturbing and hurtful content about girls. Not only was it racist, it was misogynistic, a very important point. I, I wanted you to, you know, your previous book dealt really explicitly with issues of, of gender and how that played into, you know, the, the, our, our culture ar- around gender. How much do you think... Talk to me just a little bit about, you know, the misogyny versus the racism as it came together in this particular situation.
3: Well, I think it's really important that we see these are are both part of the same system. Uh, misogyny and the patriarchy um, work hand in hand with racism and white supremacy. Uh, these are systems that create hierarchies in which some people are viewed as human and some people are not. And so it was very much the combination of these things that was being manifested on the account. You know, It was misogynoir, uh, mm-hmm. racism, particularly against black girls.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I should say just parenthetically that there was one uh, boy who was targeted, uh, a boy of uh, Southeast Asian descent, and um, or South Asian descent. And there was one girl who uh, was an account follower. So it wasn't an even gender split, but pretty close. Mm -hmm. Um, The other aspect of this that I think is important was that there was a lot of complex dynamics in the group of boys that had to do with boy culture, jockeying for position, Mm -hmm. trying to find ways to bond. And unfortunately, the patriarchy has often encourage boys to bond over the degradation of girls and women.
1: Mm. You know, let's bring in um, our first caller here. Let's bring in uh, Kathy. Welcome.
2: Hi. Uh, thanks for
4: taking my
3: call. i am really really like to hear about what the writers, the schools do now that they're having to more and more be to weighed into such um, very complex yeah. situations
4: with
1: members of their communities. They are communities, and the is yeah is what they, right? Kathy, I think um, to- it's a little hard to hear you, but I believe your question is about the role that schools should be playing in trying to mediate these events. You know, we also had another listener, Bill, on Discord, who wrote, "You know, clearly the mediation was an abject failure, worsening rather than easing tensions." You know, is there any sort of restorative justice practice that uh, might have actually worked to at least begin um, positive healing?
3: I'm so glad to hear this question asked because one of the things that uh, I was really sad to see as somebody who has been steeped in the restorative justice movement for the past six years was that restorative justice was kind of uh, the name given to this failed mediation. And so it seemed like, well, clearly it doesn't work. But it does work when it's done right. Right. And so I think it's important to look at what survivors need and uh, what is effective in dealing with people who have caused harm. So survivors need a number of things, one of which is a true accounting of events, uh, to have their questions answered and be able to tell their story. They need validation uh, that what happened to them was wrong and uh, that it actually happened. Uh, they need safety to feel that they're not going to be targeted again. They need prevention to know that the person who is going to harm, who has harmed them in the past is not going to harm other people. Uh, there's, they need resources to help with their healing. There's a number of things that they need. Uh, but what they are often told they need is punishment. And yet there is uh, no study has found a link between the length of punishment, the severity of punishment and the well-being of survivors. So given that we know that survivors need these other things, uh, how do we get that? And restorative justice is a victim-centered process that can offer some of those things that survivors are asking for while demanding true accountability from the people who harm them. So true accountability is, uh, means that you take responsibility for your actions. It means that you understand the harm that you've caused It means that you go through some process of introspection to understand how you became the person who did that. Uh, It means that you seek to make amends uh, with the consultation of the victim if they are interested in being part of that, Um, and that you don't do it again. These are not easy solutions.
1: I was about to say, trying to imagine a school (laughs) nailing that. Uh, particularly in the midst of a crisis situation like that. So what should they have done? I mean, it I, I that sounds like it would be amazing. But what do you expect? To, do, do you expect schools to be able to do that?
3: I do, actually, mm-hmm. because I think it's the only way that schools can fulfill their mission of taking care of their students. Their job is to... To protect the students who have been harmed and to have an environment that is conducive to learning and to teach students who mess up, because all of us who have been adolescents um, have messed up and, you know, hopefully not in the way that the kids who uh, follow this account did, but uh, we will harm others in our lives and we have to know how to learn from that and move on. And I think that is attainable. So, in concrete terms, what that means is taking time. There was such a rush. People, the community wanted swift, firm action. And the school, I think, felt that they would be that they would look like they were racist. They would look like they were complicit or condoning if they didn't move quickly. And so they looked at the menu of options they had, which were all exclusionary discipline, which is expulsion and suspensions, and let's do that. Hmm. If they had taken a little bit more time uh, to allow things to go more slowly, to work with uh, both sides of this and and really dig a little deeper and have the process take the rest of the school year, which is what it would have taken, um, I think they could have gotten a, a different outcome.
1: Mm. We're talking with Dashka Slater about her new book, Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed, which takes place in Albany. She's author also the author of the fifty seven bus, which has a lot about restorative justice, if you just heard her talking about it. We're gonna get to some more of your calls, you know, your questions about what happened at Albany High and about this uh, social media account you can give us a call the number is 866 6786 that's 866 6786 the email is forum at kqed.org you can find us on twitter on instagram on threads we're kqed forum you know some people want to make sure that Albany's history is, you know, adequately represented. Cena writes, you know, a bit disturbed about the lack of historical context given to Albany's racial makeup today. It and the atmosphere in the town and school—they are absolutely not the result of quote ambient racism. Albany was a legally redlined city from its earliest days. Asian and white families bought homes in Albany from long before that because it was redlined. Legal policies and explicit racism is the why Albany does not resemble the cities rela- uh, around it, including housing deeds that state the home may not be sold. To quote Negro, still in many deeds today, I mean, I've seen a point well taken many parts. I mean, there's part, many parts of San Francisco, many parts of, of Oakland. Do you think there were specific elements of Albany's um, racial legacy, racist history that, that you think really came directly into play in, in this story?
3: You know, I hear this a lot about Albany as a racist town and Albany's always been like this. I heard it while I was reporting. I've heard it since. Uh, and what I want to say is yes, and like that is all true. But as you say, it is all true of many places, including my hometown of Oakland, which also had redlining, also had restricted covenants, also had an active Ku Klux Klan in the 20s, which Albany did. Uh, you know this is part of our collective history and while it's i think you know feels like well let's just talk about what's wrong with albany i really think that it's it is what's wrong with all of us is what's wrong with with this country what's wrong with the bay area these are uh, these are mm-hmm. deep seated problems what i will say is i think important to albany is the fact that good schools are commodified there. Hmm. And anytime you have a place where there is competition to land a seat at the desk of the good school, you are gonna have built-in inequalities that end up, uh, I think, being used uh, in ways that are hurtful and harmful.
1: We're talking with Dashka Slater about her new book, Accountable. We'll be back with more right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Dashka Slater about her new book just out today. It's called Accountable, the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives It changed, which takes place in Albany. We've got, uh, I think we want to get to these topics of sort of like shame and remorse. I, you know, one of our listeners, um, we'll just start here. One of our listeners asks, when you were talking with Charles who was the account creator of this racist social media account and any of those who participated on the Instagram account did you get the feeling that any of them showed remorse have they owned up to their actions are they actually sorry or are they just sorry they got caught
3: That was a question that got asked during the mediation and uh I would say that it is Really a work in progress. Um, Of the 14 who either created or followed the account, um, I've talked to the majority, but not everybody. I would say Charles for sure uh, had a really pretty immediate remorse um, and of the fact that he was losing friendships that were important to him. Uh, I think it took a long time for him to really be able to take in the harm that he had caused and not to make excuses for it. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a process for him. The book follows uh, several of the diff- different people who were involved in the account um, and their process of coming to terms with their level of responsibility. So it follows uh, a one boy named Aaron who uh, I right away got it Um well, right away within a matter of days began to sort of b- the process of introspection and and why didn't I say anything? Um, he was a, kind of a tangential follower, not really friends with the people in the account. Um, so his journey, uh, was started pretty early. It also follows a boy named Murphy, who was, uh, the kid who revealed the account in the first place. And, uh, I found his journey particularly interesting because it he went through many different levels of uh like I know this is bad but it wasn't really me and we, it was just a joke and then maybe it like I should do something to try and uh, Make amends, but I don't know what to do, and and so his process was really uh, developed over the many years that we were talking about it. Um, For him to get to that point of really being able to take in the harm that he had caused, uh, took a while.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that at least a possible criticism of this book is that the kids who ran this account or who were involved with this account both made it and and followed it, kind of received too sympathetic. A treatment. I mean, how did you think about how to balance that? Especially, I mean, given the heinousness of the account, but also given the age of the people involved.
3: One thing that I have learned in my time in restorative justice is that people are capable of remarkable transformations. I have people in my life who have committed really terrible crimes, uh, violent crimes, murders, and rapes. Uh, who have become some of the most thoughtful, sympathetic, self-actualized, empathic, good, kind people who are in the world to do good. Um, And because I have seen that transformation, I know that that is something that is in reach for everybody, particularly for young people. So, no, I don't think that there is, uh, it is required of us that we condemn the human um, and say that a young person is irredeemable, even when they have done something that is deeply hurtful, deeply shocking. Uh, You know, I spent a lot of time looking at those posts, they never stopped being upsetting. Um, But at the same time, I could see that the people who had made or followed the account were capable of growth and change. And certainly that's what we want. Like, Mm -hmm. what is our goal? Our goal is to have people who uh, are not racist and who are members of society who are fighting for justice and equality and taking good care of the people around them.
1: That makes sense to me for people who have done the work. But, there, you know, there's one moment in this book that really with one of the boys who use who the name John for in this book, and I think is like pretty, pretty terrifying, actually. I mean, he's kind of as it turns out, he was the kid who was out there reading what they re- refer to as race realist kind of ideas. You know, stuff that's really all over neo-Nazi sites about race science, supposed race science and his level of remorse and also his sense of what happened seem actually to be quite different from the other kids how did you end up talking to him and and thinking yeah i i you know it kind of comes that revelation kind of comes fairly late in the book that there was someone who actually knew that these things emanated from the darkest corner of you know american racial grossness
3: knew and also didn't know because he believed that he had found science so, just to set the scene a little bit, uh, this was a couple of years into the reporting process. I sat down with, you know, I tried to in- interview all of the account followers, and this was a kid who actually had not engaged with the account really at all. Uh, wasn't a big social media guy, and so we sat down to talk. And he said very early on in the in the conversation, "I am significantly responsible." And I was just completely puzzled, like, how? And then he began to share with me this um, scare quotes again. I'm doing Mm -hmm. the um, information that he had found uh, on the Internet when he was researching why it was that he, as a white kid, looked different from his Asian friends. That was his initial question. And his Google search Um, ended up taking him into these very dark and uh, disturbing parts of the internet uh, that promote this fake race science that says that there are biological differences between the races that determine people's intelligence and other abilities. And he was convinced that he had found sort of a secret science. Um, I... You said that you you were found that section of the book disturbing as it did I I was incredibly shaken when I walked away from that interview because I really it was came so out of the blue, mm-hmm. and then when I went back to other people who had followed the account or were friends with this kid, mm-hmm. um, to ask them like were you listening like what did he talk to you about this did you understand what this was, and he was a very low status person in their friend group. And so there was this way in which, but he was also thought to be very smart. And so uh, it was kind of like they took in the information, but they also teased him hmm. about it. And so th- they were in this zone of kind of plausible deniability, which is where hmm. uh, all this dark stuff lives, where you can say, like, I'm uh, yes, but no. Right. Um, and then nobody can accuse you of being anything.
1: Well, and. You know, it, to get back to earlier listeners' point about the gender dynamics of this group, and you know, this, this, all this talk of you know, kind of alpha male kind of stuff that they're trying to do to each other, um, that also clearly seems to have been kind of one of his cards was to be able to kind of pull. Well, I'm willing to transgress along this racial dimension, and therefore that gives me some credibility within this group where I'm otherwise kind of like the loser of the group.
3: Exactly. And I think that this th- these kinds of boy dynamics are really important uh, because I get asked a lot and certainly the you know, people who are targeted by the account asked a lot, why did nobody say anything? Why did nobody stop this? And because anybody could have said something. Anybody could have gone outside of their friend group, gone to a teacher, gone to a parent, gone to an administrator. Somebody could have done something and nobody did. There was one kid in the group who tried. Uh, who did say a number of times, I don't think this is cool. But he, again, was low status in the group, uh, and so that was just an excuse to kind of bully him more.
1: Um, Let's try and get to um, some more calls here. Stuart in San Rafael, welcome.
4: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I have a question about the disconnect that happens between what people do online and what they do in their real life. And how they don't seem to understand the responsibility and the real-world impact that that can have. And I was wondering if, how you, if you see a way to address that, and mm. for a, a way for people to connect their kind of very outward public behavior, which sometimes they even forget that they've uh, been involved in, and what they do and their everyday interactions, and what you could yeah. maybe consider their true self,
1: Stuart. Great. Um, question. There's, I know there's both a lot of research about this, and I'm also just curious about the specific ways that you feel like the kids try to think about what they've done online versus their real life. Thank you so much, Stuart.
3: Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think that People in general, but kids in particular, make this distinction between online and offline. And there's you know, this idea that like it was a private account, so we were just joking around. And um, I, I think that connecting the dots between what you do online and how you are uh, conducting yourself in the world Often doesn't happen for young people, um, but as you say, it doesn't happen for adults either. There's mm-hmm. lots of instances of people popping off, being super, uh, you know, aggressive, hostile um, online in ways that they would never be face to face. Anonymity is a <laughs> is a dangerous thing, often. Yeah. So certainly, one thing that I hope my book will do for young people in particular is uh, to help them see the real-world consequences of what they do online. Uh, we know that about three-quarters of all young people have ex- been exposed to hate online, and about 85% of them did not seek it out. It came to them.
1: But 20% in the stats, these stats are in this book, uh, Accountable. It, the, one of the stats in it is that 20% of people have participated in the creation of some kind of hate content online. That blew my mind. That's a huge number of young
3: people. It's a huge number of young people. And so, you know, that brings up all kinds of questions for the adults um, in the lives of young people about how are we preparing kids, helping them make these connections. And I think one of the things that the caller uh, brought up is also important that Adults are often completely unaware of the online lives of their kids or their students. And, you know, the kids will have beefs with one another who have never met because of something that happened online. And so part of what happens is that the adults are not really clued in to what's happening. And so they're not helping the kids make those connections Um, and and also not helping them contextualize. The fact that there is this online hate that is coming from these very dark places, uh, but that to them is just like what everybody laughs at.
1: Mm. God, this definitely, if you're a parent out there and your child does not yet have a cell phone, this is going to make you never want to give them a cell phone. This is it. Landlines (laughs) only from here on out. Um, uh, Macha Prana on Discord writes in to say, I completely agree with the sentiment that the role of schools is to teach those who mess up. High school is a time where kids are going to explore and make all kinds of mistakes, even severe ones. They're going to need role models, both from teachers and, more importantly, from classmates. Um, And let's stay in the school realm. Eli in Sebastopol. Welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thank you. Um, I co-founded a school for at-risk students, and we never suspended anyone, but we certainly had issues. One was um, a white kid drew a... um, a noose and what and some other stuff on one of the black girls' um, locker. So obviously she was devastated, so we're friends. Well, we, we immediately took them out to lunch together. And at lunch, away from school, they were able to express each other's pain because both of them had it and see each other. And they went back and talked to their friends and uh, completely um, changed the whole dynamic. Of what had happened, and uh, we knew that when kids act up, there's pain, and so is to sit down to find out. Well, what's going on? And one last comment: in the New Guinea Highlands, they say if you don't initiate the young men, they'll burn down the village. They'll burn down the villages.
1: Hmm. Eli, thanks so much. Um, I, you know, to this question of like what should have been done how could this have gone a different way? Should it have gone a different way? Like, where's the moment, you know, where intervention could have happened, you know? It seems like it's way upstream from a lot of the things that happened, you know, the account has been created already. There's already a problem, right? So as you, you know, spent years working on this project, were there, was there a time where you thought, like, if somebody could have intervened, say, with Charles or inside that friend group, like, what would that intervention have looked like?
3: That's a great question. Um, I want to say just at the outset that one of the things that I think happened in Albany and often happens is that when the adults are upset, you know, this was such a breach of... Uh, everybody's values and such a rift and fissure in the community that the adults often kind of lose their ability to help things, uh, to, hmm. uh, to help the young people navigate because they're triggered, they're yeah. upset. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that if things happen upstream. So Charles was known to be going through a very tough time um, Uh, due to things that I talk about in the book with his family. Um, He was a kid who was known to be depressed, um, known to have issues, and yet there was not counseling available because we don't make mental health resources available. Albany High School actually does have a pretty robust mental health program in their high school, but somebody needed, I think, to help Charles get that help because he was a boy who believed that he should just muscle through as as kids often do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were many, many transgressions and uh, jokes that were offensive that were happening within these friend groups uh, and in the school as a whole that were not addressed. Again, I think the teachers probably weren't aware. The students uh, weren't – thinking that that was a big enough deal to go to the school about, you know, the often kids again, muscle through shrug, shrug stuff off because they don't want to be the angry black girl or the troublemaker. They don't want to invite repercussions. Um, one of the girls uh, who's a main character in the story, Andrea um, had had an incident, a bullying incident uh, from Charles and some of the other account followers involving the touching of her hair and videotaping mm-hmm. it. And, uh, posting it on 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 uh, uh, on different mm-hmm. social media account, and so there were warning signs, absolutely. But again, I don't think people were aware enough to see this is going to mm-hmm. uh, lead to trouble this down has the line. Its
1: potential. Did the girls who were affect- negatively affected and posted about by this account? Did they were they able to reach some closure or, or, or sense of piece about what happened?
3: Again, it really was varied from person to person, uh, how they me- metabolized the whole experience and how they found healing. It took a long time. And the girls were really distressed and anxious and depressed for a long time. And then COVID came, and that didn't help because that sense mm-hmm. of isolation um, and life interrupted that they had all been feeling in the wake of the account sort of continued. Uh But many of them, I would say not all of them, found a path out. Um, Andrea ended up um, being able to travel and do a lot of um, inner work for herself to kind of uh, develop uh, her, her, Mm -hmm. find herself again and allow herself to blossom in a way that had been really tamped down Mm -hmm. by the account. Other uh, girls changed schools. graduated early you know. people had different ways to get through it
1: but they got through yeah there's a lot more in the book it's called accountable the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives It changed if you're from albany and you're thinking they didn't talk about this or that i promise you it's in the book uh, dashka slater is also the author of the 57 bus thank you so much for joining us
3: thanks so much for having me
1: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
2: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation,